It is so good to be with you all. I cannot tell you. And it's wonderful to be able to talk with you about First Samuel. I've been thinking about this for quite a while, like months. <laughs> Not just this talk, but just the whole study. And it louder. You need more sound. If I put it in another place, is that better? Is that better? Or you know what? I'm a teacher. I got a voice. Yeah. Okay. So First Samuel is just a wonderful thing to delve into, and I hope you all enjoy it like I have, have enjoyed it over these past few months. Um, but first, I want to touch base with last year, because I just can't quite leave it. It's just too good. Okay, last year, God gave us this amazing treasure. We had the joy of studying the gospel of Mark. And so in these dark pandemic moments and COVID numbers are rising and falling, we walked with Jesus and his disciples. Remember? Remember? Mm. We read, we discussed, we prayed, we pondered what Jesus said, what he did, how the people around him reacted. And we saw our own flaws and our own hopes in Peter, James, and John, and all the others. We felt the saving grace of Jesus for our own brokenness, and our hearts filled and lifted and sang. Jesus was alive, and his compassion for the leopard, for the leper and the lame, and the learned also, was his compassion for each of us. In Mark 15, he died for you and me. And in Mark 16, he stepped out of the tomb and offers to us life with him forever. Accepting his amazing gift begins a transformation. Because Christ has come and given himself for us, we have a completely new identity. We're citizens of God's kingdom, his children. Through his spirit, we're being transformed, made new. But the transformation is not always straightforward and easy. Sometimes it just plain hurts. As C.S. Lewis says, We're toy soldiers coming alive, being transformed from metal into flesh. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. We become... God's children at a great price to him. I'm not my own. I'm bought with Jesus's blood. And when my life here comes to an end, I will be fully alive with him forever. Now this year we turn to the New Testament, but the Old Testament, excuse me, New Testament last year, Old Testament. 
First Samuel. This is an ancient story about three very different kinds of heroes. The prophet Samuel, Saul, Israel's first king, and then we'll be diving very deeply into David, the greatest and best loved king of Israel. Over, around, through every person, every army, every nation, Almighty God guides and directs and informs and provides and chastens. Some Psalms written by David will also be part of our study. We've selected these specific Psalms that David wrote about his personal experiences that happened during the course of the first Samuel story. One of the precious facets of the Psalms is that as songs, they uniquely convey the inward depths of the soul. So they tell us about who David really is on the inside. Who is David? This man after God's own heart. Not only do the Psalms help to shape our response to God in the trials and the joys of life, but they also reveal to us something of the inner life, not only of David, but of Jesus. For what resource did Christ often grasp for when teaching the disciples or the crowds or instructing the Pharisees? What words shaped Jesus's anguished cry out to his father? The Psalms. If Christ is truly my rock, how will my feet find him when the water rushes over my head? When my soul cries out in fear and uncertainty, how do I hold fast to the everlasting God? During a women's Bible study lecture, um, really several years ago, I remember Lynn Leary teaching. And she began her talk by saying that when crisis strikes out of the blue, or when life is just grinding and hard, she clings to scripture that's committed to memory written on her heart. And Lynn was right. For God's word to cut through sorrow and fear and anxiety For his word to lift our eyes in thanksgiving in the midst of trouble. We need our sword with us, sharp and ready for battle. God's words must be written on our hearts. Life is unpredictable. Do you wake in the night? Does your mind whirl and fret over a willful child? A sick husband, an angry friend, a job that leaves you bone dry at the end of the day? Do you cry out in the morning, not knowing how to pour out your heart to the Lord? Or are you sometimes completely overwhelmed with God's generosity and his mercy? Does it strike you speechless as it does me this year? I was so grateful. With glory and honor, 
what grand generosity is that? Amazement at Jesus who knows our weakness and loves us anyway. Amazement. Psalm 8 places my feet squarely on our Abba Father, whose commitment to his image bearers remains steadfast. Listen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him and yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands and laid all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this year, this year, I encourage you to seek his face and search out messages from God's word that speak directly into your life. God has given them to you as pillars of your faith. Bind and commit each one to your heart. And when trouble comes, not if, but when. Open the treasure. Hold on tight and reach for him with every precious word of truth and hope. Now to 1 Samuel. Ryan Kelly calls 1 Samuel a hinge book, a hinge book. Between the period of the judges and the Davidic monarchy in Israel, the overall message of The book of Judges is that God's people, well, they self-destruct. Yeah, that's what they do. When they disobey God and they get their values instead from their pagan neighbors, ta-da, it happens. Judges is a book about God delivering his people repeatedly from the mess that they create. Now, these judges, they're not substitute kings. They're people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah and Samuel, each chosen by God to speak for him and to rescue, really is what they were doing, rescue a territory or a tribe of Israel. You see, Israel's government was a theocracy. And under a theocracy, God is the ruler He was their king, and he chose 
human leaders when and if and as they were needed. So selected judges stepped in when the people were under tyranny or threat. Again and again, the people followed the examples of their neighbors and they drifted away and a judge would be appointed and come to help get them out of the mess. So here is the very last verse of the book of Judges to tell us what sort of period it was. Listen carefully because it should remind you of right now. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. True, the days when Israel had no king were days of moral anarchy. And as Tim Chester puts it in his commentary, the final chapter of Judges makes for grim reading. These are stories you were never taught in Sunday school. They're ugly. They're brutal. This is what life was like when there was no king and everyone does as they see fit. But the situation is more ambiguous, truly. It's true that Israel had no king, but that's because, you see, remember, this is a theocracy. The people refused to acknowledge God as their king. The Lord was Israel's king. And the real problem was not the lack of a king, but lack of obedience to God as king. So into this very messy period of history steps a prophet, Samuel, the last judge of Israel. Now, God knows that the people's demand for a king is really made out of a desire to look like everybody else. They want to be like all the other nations. They have kings. We need one, too. A rejection of God's leadership. I mean, we can't see him. We want somebody we can see. We want a king like everyone else. But eventually, you know what? He gives them what they ask for. In the story of Israel and Saul, we discover what happens. Hmm. What happens when God gives us what we want and not what he wants? for us. Saul is anointed by Samuel, and he's fully recognized as Israel's first king. So from now on, the responsibility for ruling is going to be divided between this political king, like Saul or David, and a prophet. The prophet would be someone like Samuel or Nathan or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or mm, there's lots of them, right? And these prophets would stand firmly for Israel's obligation to Yahweh. That's another story about what happens between the king and the prophet throughout the history of Israel. Okay. Who wrote for Samuel? We don't really know. Though it's named for the prophet Samuel, he was not alive for a lot of the events in the book, most of them really. However, Samuel was a likely source. First Chronicles 29, 29 tells us 
talks about the uh, records of Samuel, the seer, another name for prophet. What we read in First and Second Samuel was compiled likely by an unknown author soon after the reign of King David. The goal of First Samuel is to retell events and reveal the choices of people in a way that points out God's character and his complete and total control of history. So that has a lot to do then with the themes of First Samuel. The themes are about his nature and his character. And these themes are repeated throughout the book. First of all, God's kingship. Secondly, the theme of his providential guidance. And third, God's sovereign will and power. Now, I've leaned a lot upon the Gospel Coalition um, and that description of the themes for our lesson today. I want, I want to be clear about that. First, God is the king of the universe. Human kings and rulers assume their position as a deputy, if you will, of the Lord, the divine king. Their authority, whether thousands of years ago or right now, today, their authority is granted for his purposes. The ruler's heart, whether intentional or not, his heart is irresistibly guided by the Lord. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. In 1 Samuel 2.10, Samuel's mother Hannah sings, the Lord is the one who judges the ends of the earth. Hannah asserts that this king, the Lord, the Lord is the one who gives power to his anointed human deputy, the king, or the ruler of any kind, not just king. According to Genesis, all human beings are created as royal figures in the image of God. And so humans are deputies who rule and control other creatures for the sake of the king of the universe. That's our work. So when God allowed the people of Israel to have a human king, he was responsible to the Lord for his actions and subject to the Lord's commands. The king's authority was derived from God. I want to step back into Mark for just a second. Recalling Mark, I'm sure you're going to remember the question of who has political and religious authority. Remember this came up again and again in Mark. The Pharisees claimed authority to interpret tradition and the law. They challenged Jesus's authority. And Jesus clarified over and over and over and over again. He clarifies who has authority over demons, over storms, over all kinds of sickness and health, over the Sabbath, authority over taxes, and over men's hearts. The question of authority is a daily one for us. Because you know what? In many 
we all stand in positions of leadership, believe it or not. We do. But it's at all kinds of different levels. So let's look at some of those levels. Each one who stands in a position of leadership and makes decisions that impact others. That would be all of us in this room, really. First Samuel provides in-depth analysis of what makes for good and bad leadership. As we look at priests and prophets like Eli and Samuel or at kings like Saul and David. What's true for leaders of that kind, moreover, is true for all individuals, all of us, in their choices that they make for and against God. Do we, as parents and teachers and employers and church leaders and school board members, act as God's deputies out of his authority and follow God's word? Or are we acting as if we hold the authority and we do what's right in our own eyes? As the ultimate king, God often acts through the powerless. This is one way that God clearly shows his hands at work. We see him moving exactly this way throughout scripture. So what looks little and weak and barren and oppressed and suffering and penniless and powerless turns out to be victorious in 1 Samuel? Watch how this story reminds you of Jesus and his followers, Jesus and the cross. Out of Hannah's barrenness, God brings about the prophet Samuel. God chooses a big, shy farmer as the first king. And later, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is the one who consistently and graciously guided Hannah, who's a character in 1 Samuel, Samuel, David, even the life of Saul was consistently in God's providential care. 1 Samuel 9, 16. Though we rarely see it, except in hindsight, God's timing is always perfect. I mean, after all, he is the Lord of history. The working out of God's saving plan happens in day-to-day lives of people just like us, day-to-day lives. Hmm, potty training. Um, Passing by my neighbor, walking the dog. Think of all the day-to-day things that happen. Well, in 1 Samuel, Hannah's difficult relationship with her husband's second wife leads to the birth of Samuel. Saul's donkey-searching journey leads him to the prophet Samuel. David's chore of bringing food to his brothers enables him to see Goliath and defeat him. Ordinary situations are the most meaningful in human life. Don't let them pass you by. It is in these that God works for good. Times of trouble and suffering, wilderness times, these are times that draw us close to him. Out of desperation, they draw us. 
You will read of David's years, David's years that he spent in a literal wilderness, fleeing from Saul. This was his training time, his training ground, the fiery forge that formed a man with a deep passion for Yahweh. C.S. Lewis tells us that God whispers to us in our joys and he shouts at us in our pain. Is he shouting to you now? It is out of love that he does this. For he knows he's our maker. He must have us completely. Only in him will our joy be found. Finally, God's sovereign will and power is evident in the events of 1 Samuel. As Hannah phrases it, God is all-knowing, a God of knowledge. He chooses people according to his absolute sovereign will and purpose. Now, the Lord may change how he deals with individuals. And sometimes this looks strange to us. But he's eternally perfect, merciful, and gracious. The present contains no worry for him, like it does for us. The future is pregnant with every good thing that God has planned for us. His decisions are always just. Therefore, obedience to God is it's of prime importance for us. Goodness, it's in our best interest. I mean, he's the one who knows. Second, first and second Samuel provide many examples of the importance of listening to God. The boy Samuel listens to the voice of God in the night while Saul rejects God's commandment and David fights bravely with Goliath for the honor of Yahweh's name. But later, fails to uphold God's commandments in 2 Samuel. Only God's grace upholds broken humans. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over every virus, every virus, every tornado, every crisis, and seemingly hopeless situation. Our confident hope in life and death rests on God's sovereignty and his boundless love. The themes of 1 Samuel are filled with big word attributes like majestic, immutable, holy, omnipotent, and sovereign, all profoundly true, each one. Sometimes words like these can make God appear distant. But David's Psalms help reveal the heart of our great shepherd. On this side of the cross, we have the thrill of knowing that God stepped into history himself in the flesh and blood of a man from Nazareth. What seems distant is personal. Our Abba Father's heart is the heart of Jesus, compassionate, merciful, and tender, He seeks us out. He says, come to me. I guess we shouldn't be surprised if we hear echoes of 1 Samuel themes in Mark and the other Gospels. I mean, I recall the encounter between Jesus and a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. 
And he said, uh, it goes like this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's really amazing to grasp that the entire Bible is one huge unfolding story where we can expect to encounter Jesus around every corner. Jesus, son of man, our perfect shepherd, priest, and king. Tim Chester urges us to look deeply at the lives of Israel's first kings, anointed with oil. He tells us that the anointed one means Messiah in Hebrew, or Christ with a small c in Greek. As we see the disastrous reign of Saul, the first appointed king that Israel asked for, and as we see the brilliant and flawed reign of David, the king that God blessed his people with, we're pointed towards Jesus, the Christ. The history of the first anointed kings leaves us longing for Jesus to be our ultimate savior and king. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that you go with us now as we begin a new study into your word. Holy Spirit, flood our hearts with light. Guide our understanding. Help us to be thoughtful and vulnerable in our groups as we discuss and pray together. May what we learn together enable us to follow and to honor you more completely during these challenging times. Lord Jesus, we eagerly await for you to come again from heaven to earth and finish making all things new. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.